Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study of God's word this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and to think about your word and to study it, to allow the Holy Spirit to refresh us with the teaching of your word, to come to a greater understanding of our riches and glory in Christ Jesus and all that is ours by virtue of our position in Christ. Now, Father, we pray that as we study these things that we might be able to concentrate, focus, and that you'll drive home the significance of these things in our thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Now, as we get into this next few verses in Hebrews, we have to have a little review of what is going on here. Chapter 7 is the beginning of a lengthy section dealing with the significance of Jesus Christ's high priesthood, that he is our high priest. What does that mean? Why is that significant? How does that affect the believer's life? This is a foundation for us because in his priestly ministry, as part of his mediatorial ministry, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and by virtue of our position in Christ, we are seated at the right hand of the Father with him. We are in him, and we are all believer priests because of that identification with Jesus Christ. Now, the question that apparently was at issue with these Jewish background believers that were uh, the, the object of this, this epistle is that they had questions about the significance of Christ's priesthood and how can he even be a priest because he is not from the tribe of Levi. So how does this all work out? So I've got about six points of review here to get our minds back into this particular topic. First point, we have to realize that the Levitical priesthood was based on tribal relationship to Levi. Levi was one of Jacob's 12 sons. So the priesthood was based on tribal relationship to Levi, but it wasn't established until the Mosaic Covenant. That's important background for understanding this passage. Levi wasn't a priest. Levi's descendants all the way down to Aaron were not priests. Aaron is the first high priest, and it is at that that. Exodus generation where you first have a priesthood 
uh, a Levitical priesthood established. The uh, Levites were priests, only those who were direct descendants from Aaron were high priests. Second point, Jesus Christ was a descendant from the tribe of Judah, so he wasn't qualified to serve as priest or high priest. He came from the line of Judah through David, and was that wasn't the priestly line. So if Jesus Christ is going to be a priest or high priest, then how does that work? Third point, the Levitical priesthood was a priesthood that was limited in space and time. It is a limited or temporary uh, priesthood. Well, I, I'm, under the Mosaic law, it's temporary. It is, uh, it's limited in space and time. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, it's limited in space. The Levitical priesthood was only for the Jewish nation. The Levitical priesthood is only for the Jewish nation. So it's limited in space. It's not for Gentiles. It's not for everybody on the earth. It's only for, only for the Jews. So that limited it in space. The Levitical priesthood was part of the temporary Mosaic law. So it's limited in time. Now what we'll see when we get into chapter 8 is that the writer of Hebrews goes into the terminology related to the new covenant out of Jeremiah 31 and says that the significance of the new covenant by being called a new covenant is that it shows that the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant was always intended to be temporary. It never was intended to be a permanent situation. Now, whenever you have, and this is part of what the argument is going to be in chapter 8, is that whenever you have a contract change, there's a change in priesthood. There's just change in other things. And what happens is you have the high priesthood of Christ but something else is going to happen, and when we get there, we'll have to figure out how all this goes together. And that is that there is a resurrection of a branch of the Levitical priesthood for service in the Millennial Temple that is built during the thousand-year Millennial Kingdom. And so that priesthood comes into place. So there are actually a couple of priesthoods operational in the Millennium Kingdom because we, as resurrected, raptured, returned church-age believers, will be serving as, as kings and priests in the millennial kingdom. But not, we won't be serving as priests in the temple, in the millennial temple. That is reserved for descendants from one particular line of, of Aaron. So the Levitical priesthood in terms of its establishment in the Mosaic Covenant, is temporary in time. Once that covenant ended, that ended the Levitical priesthood. The priesthood that comes in in the Millennial Kingdom is going to come in under the New Covenant in relationship to, to Israel. So we see that the Levitical priesthood was part of the temporary Mosaic law, so it's limited in time and it's limited in Space. It was only for Israel during the period of the Mosaic Law. Fourth point, for the Messiah to have a universal priesthood to represent all mankind to God, it would have to be a different priesthood and one that was not limited by space or time. The Messianic priesthood would have to be one that was not limited in space and time. It would have to be a universal priesthood. So therefore, the precedent, 
the basis for this priesthood had to come from something else. This is our uh, fifth point, that the Melchizedekian priesthood was a royal high priesthood that was universal in space and time and was not limited by either ethnic or temporal qualifications. And that's why you have these statements earlier in the chapter that emphasize the fact that within Scripture there's no mention or emphasis on the parentage, the genealogy, uh, or the beginning or the end of Melchizedek's life. The time and ethnicity are not factors in qualifying Melchizedek, Melchizedek's priesthood. So therefore his was a universal priesthood, a Gentile priesthood that related to uh, all humanity. And so this is point number six. This is why the writer of Hebrews refers to this as the pattern for the royal high priesthood of Jesus Christ. So let's just pick up the argument. Well, the interesting thing here is in these first ten verses, there is no mention of Jesus Christ, no mention of the Lord at all. He is building a tight, intricate argument leading up to recognition that there is another and a superior priesthood, another priesthood than the uh, Levitical priesthood and a superior priesthood to the Levitical priesthood. Once he can establish that, which he does in these ten verses, then he will transition to applying that to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he begins with an explanation in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, who he just mentioned at the end of chapter 6, king of Salem... He reminds them that he is the king of Salem because this puts him in a position of authority over Abraham. He is a ruler. He is uh, more than simple aristocracy, but he was the king of Salem, uh, an older term for the city of Jerusalem, and a priest of the Most High God, El Elyon, as he's described in the Old Testament. So he is a royal priest. He met Abram. Most of what we have in these first four verses is just a rehearsal of what occurred back in Genesis chapter uh, Genesis chapter 14. Who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Very important. He blesses him. It is a specific kind of blessing indicating the superiority of Melchizedek over Abraham because he blesses him. To whom, that is to Melchizedek also, Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Now, this tithe that Abraham gave was, as I pointed out before, it's a free will gift. It is a one-time thing. It is a tithe not from all of Abraham's possessions, but from uh, that which was taken, in, the plunder that was taken when he defeated the uh, uh, Keterleomer alliance. He gives that as a tribute. This was standard operating procedure in the ancient world that when there was a ruler, an emperor, a king, that when someone had a victory of this, then that tribute was paid. Uh, remember, um, Abraham doesn't own any land in the land of Canaan, so this would be a tribute payment uh, to someone in authority. And that Bringing this out is what the writer Hebrews is doing. It's emphasizing the superiority of Melchizedek to Abraham. So he gave, Abraham gave him a tenth part of all, 
and first being translated, that is his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, meaning King of Peace. So these are titles that's it's brought up by the writer of Hebrews to emphasize his royalty and his thus his authority and superiority to Abraham. That's where the that's where his argument is going in these ten verses, is that on the basis of what happens it shows that Abraham and thus anyone who comes from Abraham, thus anyone who is Abraham's descendant, is inferior or subordinate to the king. And this is why he can say that the Levitical priesthood is subordinate to the uh, Melchizedekian priesthood. Verse 3, just a description of Melchizedek to reinforce the fact that his priesthood is not based on genealogy. He's without father, without mother. doesn't mean he didn't have parents. It doesn't mean he was deity, that this is a pre-incarnate Christ. That's not true because he was flesh and blood. Pre-incarnate Christ, when he appears in the Old Testament, uh, isn't true humanity yet. He is a human. But the text doesn't describe his parentage. The Old Testament record doesn't give his father or mother in the sense that he has to have a particular lineage in order to qualify for priesthood, which the Levitical priesthood uh, had. His birth and death aren't mentioned. Why is that important? Because under the uh, Levitical qualifications for a priest, a priest did not take office, was not inaugurated in his office until he was 30. When he was 50, he had to retire. He only had 20 years of service. So time was a factor in the service of a Levitical priest, but time's not a factor for uh, Melchizedek. It didn't matter when he was born or when he died. This wasn't a factor. So the kinds of qualifications that you have in the Mosaic Law to qualify a serving Levitical priest were not mentioned anywhere in Scripture. They're not relevant to the Melchizedekian priesthood. He's made like the Son of God. It's a comparative statement. It doesn't say he is the Son of God. If it were the pre-incarnate Christ, because he's eternally the Son of God, and we've studied that out of out of Psalm 2, because he's eternally the Son of God, uh, the writer of Hebrews would have to say he was the Son of God. He couldn't say he's the Son of God is like the Son of God if, if Melchizedek were the pre-incarnate Christ. So it's, it's clear that he is, uh, Melchizedek was a human being. And he says that he would remain a priest continually. Once again, there weren't temporal factors indicating when his priesthood was in. Now, all that's important for laying out the conclusion that he's going to get to in verses 4 through 10. Then in verse 4 he says, Now consider how great this man was, this man being Melchizedek. He wants his his readers to think about this. He uses the word uh, theoreo, which is used some 58 times in the New Testament. A lot of times in the Gospels it simply refers to looking and seeing something. But in many cases, it has it has a greater sense. It's a present active imperative, which means that they are being uh, commanded to stop and think. Okay, we're all going to concentrate on this for just a minute. There's just a few verses in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter chapter uh, 14 and in Psalm 110 that mention Melchizedek. But let's stop a minute and concentrate and focus on what the text tells us. That's the idea of theoreo, to examine something closely, 
to visually uh, examine it or inspect it for a purpose, and thus it came to refer to the act of mentally focusing on, concentrating on, observing the details of something. So we're going to take a little time to concentrate on what the text tells us in the Old Testament about Melchizedek and what the implications are. So the writer of Hebrews says, now let's think about how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham, as great as Abraham was, Abraham had someone who was greater. He had he gave a tenth of the spoils as a tribute to Melchizedek, indicating the superior position that Melchizedek had, and Abraham clearly recognized that he was the social and political inferior to Melchizedek, and so Abraham gave a tithe of the spoils, paid tribute to Melchizedek. Verse 5. Let's go on and build a little uh, application. Let's move on top of that. Verse 5 we read, And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, now we're going to shift to the descendants of Levi, to Levitical priests. Indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood by virtue of what? By virtue of birth. That's all that was qualified to be a Levitical priest, is you had to fit certain physical qualifications. You had to be born from the tribe of Levi, and you had to be qualified physically. You couldn't have various uh, uh, deformities or health problems. Otherwise, uh, and if, they, if so, you were disqualified. You didn't have to be regenerate. There's no qualification that says that these guys had to be saved. They had to get up on, on uh, Shabbat, and they had to give their testimony of how they had come to understand who the Messiah of Israel was and to trust him for salvation. There's no spiritual qualification. It's all physical qualification to serve in the in the tabernacle and later the temple. So they were of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood and they have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. This refers to the mandates in the Mosaic law, which we studied in the last uh, two or three lessons as we studied the doctrine of tithing and giving, that there were three tithes spelled out in the Mosaic Law. Leviticus 27.30 explains the overall law of the tithe. Uh, Numbers 18.21-23 through 23 talked about an annual tithe for the support of the uh, Levites and priests. Deuteronomy 14.22-24 talked about the tithe that was taken up every every year to... Uh, deal with the uh, widows and orphans, and uh, no, that Deuteronomy 14:22-24 is a tithe for the annual celebration, and Deuteronomy 14:28-29 is a tithe related to the uh, support of widows and orphans, and that one was taken up every third year. So the Levitical priests were commanded to receive certain tithes that were mandated according to the law, that is from their brethren. Now notice the point that he's making here. It's, it's one that can easily go past you, is that on the one hand you have the Levitical priests. On the other hand, you have the other 11 tribes in Israel. Now they're all equal because they're equally sons of Jacob. None was superior to the other. That's his point here. They were to receive tithes from their brethren, even though they had all come equally 
from the loins of Abraham. There's no superiority in the relationship between the Levitical priests and the descendants of Judah or Benjamin or Issachar or Simeon or any of the others. Then he says, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them, in other words, there's going to be a contrast now that the one whose genealogy is not derived from them is is an allusion to Melchizedek. And he's restating the fact that Melchizedek's ancestry is unrelated to the to Levi. Melchizedek preceded Levi in time. He is not descended from Abraham. <coughs> and so uh, there's, a, there's a complete uh, distinction between the, uh, Melchizedek and the Levites. He whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham. The point he's making is Levites received tithes because they were mandated to do so under the Mosaic Law. That's not the case with Melchizedek. Melchizedek received tithes on a different basis. And the basis is that he is superior to Abraham because of his position as the royal high priest, the king of Salem, the king of righteousness, having the title Melchizedek, which was probably a title and not, as I pointed out before, and not a personal name. And you have this same kind of thing. There was another Canaanite uh, mentioned later on in the time of Joshua. His name was Adonai Zedek, meaning Lord of Righteousness. So this apparently were, these were dynastic titles among uh, the leaders in these various Canaanite uh, city-states. So the point of verse 6 is that Melchizedek, was had no relationship to the Levites, and he received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So who is him who had the promises? That's Abraham. And the promise refers to the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of land, seed, and blessing that God made to Abraham as part of an eternal covenant. Remember, I've been reemphasizing the point that it's not simply a difference between conditional versus unconditional, which is how all of us were trained to think in terms of the, of the covenants. It's really a, a, an issue of permanent versus temporary. That the most, there are conditions. The Jews could not enjoy the blessing of being in the land if they were disobedient, right? They had to be obedient. So there's a condition to enjoy the blessing of Abraham, but there's not a condition for having that as a, as a basic un- unending promise. And so the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant are all permanent covenants, and the Mosaic covenant was designed to be a temporary covenant that would be superseded by the new covenant when Jesus Christ came. So he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. He blesses Abraham because he's in a position of authority. The thing that the writer is emphasizing from verses 1 through 6 now is this authority relationship. He's the king of Salem, the king of righteousness. He is the royal high priest, but but it's Abraham who pays tithes. It's Abraham who pays tribute. It's Melchizedek who blesses Abraham. All of that just simply to set up this whole thing that he's getting ready to apply. Now, we come to verse 7. We recognize that Abraham understood that he was inferior to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was in that position of authority. So now we read, Now, 
beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Actually, it's the idea of greater, and the emphasis there is on authority. So that's our conclusion, verse 17, I mean verse 7, that the lesser is blessed by the greater. That's our principle. All of this is he's laying a, I mean, you may think we're belaboring the point, but when we get to the last part of it, that's when he drives it home. He is making sure his audience understands that Abraham is not equal to Melchizedek. And if you were a Jew and you had been taught to honor Abraham and always taught how, one, how great Abraham was as the father of the Jewish people, this was something that was going to have to be driven home, that, that there's this Gentile priest-king that was not only not, not simply equal to Abraham, he was superior to Abraham. That was really cutting at the core of Jewish pride as it existed in the first century. So verse 8, now he's going to start tying these things together. We read here that the opening of the, of the verse, as it's translated in New King James, here mortal men receive tithes. Now the here there is really, he's really using this in terms of talking about the argument. You've got this point, this point, this point. Now here, so it's, it sounds like he's almost talking. As I said in the introduction, I think that this was probably originally a, a message, uh, a, a sermon, uh, as opposed to an epistle laid out like one of the Pauline epistles, and then later it was written down and, and mailed. So he's talking about, okay, look at this point. Now we're going to compare it to that point. And that is a literal translation. However, the uh, New American Standard translates it uh, in this case, which brings out the idea a little better. It's a li- little easier to understand that. He says, in this case, now let's take a little time to translate this so we can understand it better. In this case, that is, in the case of of who? Now, that's an interesting question. Here are mortal men. Now, is that referring to Abraham receiving tithes from, or is it referring to the Levites? It's referring to the Levites. Why do I say that? Because you have a plural noun here, men. And you have anthropoi, which is the plural of anthropos in the, in the Greek. And every time you go through this section of the past three or four verses, the plural always refers to the Levites. The singular refers to Melchizedek or to Abraham. So you have here, here that is, and it's a sense of now, now, in this case, as things exist under the Mosaic law with the Levitical priesthood, mortal men, that is literally men capable of death. That lit- would be the literal translation. So he's saying, in this case, that is in the case of Levitical priests, men capable of death, men who are what? Temporary. See, he's just been talking about uh, this this contrast in terminology with Melchizedek, with Melchizedek that back in verse where was that back in verse four or is it three back in verse three he was a priest continually now the verbiage in here we well, have to stop and talk about this a minute the verbiage here really sounds strange to the, our way of talking. Because it sounds like he's talking about 
the fact that Melchizedek doesn't die, that he just goes on living and the Levites are dying. That, that's not what he's talking, talking about. He's talking idiomatically. That which doesn't die is that which is permanent. That's the emphasis of the idiom. That which doesn't die is permanent. That which is subject to death, men subject to death, is that which isn't permanent. It's subject to cessation. It's temporary. And that's where he's going with this contrasting uh, terminology. So he says, here at this time, that is men subject to death. It's temporary. They're going to die. Uh, their, their priesthood ends at a particular time. It's a temporary thing. They receive tithes. But there, that is, in this case, with Melchizedek, he receives them. And then it says, of whom, that is, of Melchizedek, it is witnessed, literally, have our word martyreo, it is... Uh, while there, while it is testi- there is testimony that he lives. And this is, once again, I said it sounds strange to us, it, it reads weird to us, but the point of it is that the testimony is that he lives. It's a Jewish idiom expressing the point that the Melchizedekian priesthood lived on, whereas the Levitical priesthood died. One is permanent, one is impermanent, one is temporary. That's the thrust of verse 8, that the men subject to death received tithes. They were subject to uh, temporary ministry. But the one of whom it is witnessed, he lives, he goes on. He had a, his, his type of priesthood was a permanent priesthood. Now we're going to make... Another application. And this is where it's applied to the present situation. He says, even Levi, in the New King James, translates it, even Levi who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. Now, this is a really interesting verse. And it's some interesting things have been done with this verse over the course of the development of theology and our understanding of doctrine. So we have to address some of those particular issues. First thing we need to note is that the uh, phrase that we have at the end in the New King James, so to speak, is the first phrase first phrase in the in the Greek. Now wait to the end. The first thing he says is, and as a manner of speaking, as a way of talking. And it's the only time we have this this idiom in the Greek New Testament. And what it means is, okay, I'm going to say something in kind of a strange way here in order to make a point. In other words, he's not talking literally. But down through the course of time in church history, there have been theologians who have taken this literally and used this to support the view that body and soul are both transmitted physically through procreation. That's how this verse is used. This is the uh, almost the proof text for the view known as traditionism. We'll get into that in just a minute. And it's, it, it misses the whole point. Number one, the writer himself says this is an unusual way of speaking. 
I'm just making a point. I'm talking almost allegorically or figuratively here. And then he says, Levi received tithes and paid tithes through Abraham. Well, first of all, the term Levi is also used in a figurative or allegorical manner here, representative manner, because Levi never literally received tithes from anybody. It was his descendants. The first Levite to ever receive tithes was going to be Aaron and the Levites at the time that they were camped out around Mount Sinai and the Mosaic Law was first instituted. So there's no uh, literal action where Levi uh, received tithes. In fact, what we've seen in our study on Genesis is that Levi and Simeon were, were, almost, were partners in crime, literally, at Shechem. And they were responsible for the slaughter of all the Shechemites, just not, not very uh, wonderful brothers. And they have their particular set of problems. So Levi wasn't a very honorable person, certainly not a, a spiritual uh, giant. So Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, or even in a manner of speaking, Levi received tithes and paid tithes through Abraham. Now, there are those who come along and say, see, what this shows, if we take it literally, is that somehow Levi was actually present in Abraham because it says Levi paid tithes. Not Abraham, but Levi did it because he's in, physically, in the loins of Abraham. But as I'm pointing out, I'm belaboring this point, is the text says this is a figure of speech, it's a manner of speaking, and secondly, even Levi is used in a non-literal sense. So, the third point we need to observe here is that the writer is merely recognizing, this is the interpretation of the passage, he's merely recognizing that the descendants of a man are represented in many cases by the ancestor. The descendants of the man is clearly represented by the ancestor. So that if God enters into a contract with Noah, that contract is not voided by Noah's death. It is still in effect for Noah's children and Noah's great-grandchildren and for all of humanity all the way down to the present. The same thing is true when God entered into a contract with Abraham Abraham was representing all of his descendants. And so that contract is still in effect in relation to all of Abraham's descendants. That would be one biblical example. A second biblical example would be in the book of Joshua. When Joshua, this is about Joshua 7 or 8, uh, Joshua's in the, um, still in the northern campaign, and there's a group of Canaanites who live in the city of Gibeon, and they are scared to death because they watched what happened at Jericho. They saw what happened at Ai. And so they dress up. They, they put on their, their costume to make it look like they're homeless and they travel a long distance. And they put on all their old clothes and they smear dirt all over their bodies and they look like they've been traveling on the dirty, dusty road for days and days and days. And they come to uh, Joshua and they say, See, we are come from a long distance and we're scared to death about what you're going to do. And so we want to enter into a contract with you, a covenant with you, that you're not going to kill us. And Joshua failed to consult God. And he said, oh, great, we're just going to take them at their word. And we're going to, um, 
enter into a covenant with them. And then Israel got disciplined by them, by God, because of this, because they were Canaanites from just over the other side of the ridge. And, and Joshua had failed to, to consult God. But he had entered into a peace treaty with them that he would do. So all the Jews from that point on were still responsible for what their ancestor had done in terms of fulfilling that contract. In the same way that the United States at various times in its history has entered into various uh, treaties and contracts with other nations and subsequent generations are still responsible for living up to the terms of those contracts established by previous generations. So that is all that's going on here. It's just a figure of speech for talking about the fact that that the ancestor to the Levitical priests represented them, and we could formulate it this way, that Abraham, who's as the father of the Jewish people, was greater than Levi, who was one of his descendants. And if Abraham paid tribute to Melchizedek, then Melchizedek was obviously greater than Abraham. So if Abraham was greater than his descendants, then that would mean that Melchizedek would also be greater than his descendants. It's a very simple argument that Levi, as a descendant of Abraham, was represented by his ancestor in the paying of the tithes. It's not to be taken literally. The writer even says that. And, of course, as I stated earlier, this verse is a foundational verse for those who believe that the soul is generated and passed on to the next generation by uh, by the parents. So that leads us to an important discussion of how is the soul, how does the soul, how did your soul originate and get transmitted from and get transmitted to you in the process of birth? So that is the question. First point, we'll probably spend the rest of tonight and next week talking about this because it's important. It's as fresh as the news today. Last night, Rudy Giuliani was apparently interviewed by somebody. Who interviewed him? I heard the clips today, but I forget who interviewed him. He was interviewed on 60 Minutes or one of these shows, and he was asked about would he support federal funding of abortion? And so abortion gets back in the news, and there's a lot of discussion about this today, back and forth, and it always is, and it's a touchy subject for a lot of people. But we have to go to the Scripture. We have to talk about what does the Scripture say and what does the Scripture not say in relationship to this particular topic. And so we'll take some time to go through this in detail to make sure we fully understand what the Scripture says, because this topic is important, and it's It's often misunderstood today, and because of the... It's sort of a case of reverse exegesis. Because of the turmoil of abortion since Roe v. Wade in 1973, a lot of theologians who had held one view flipped just because of that decision. Not because of exegesis, but because all of a sudden they thought, well, if I hold this position... That's going to justify abortion. Nobody came along and told them, no, it's not true. And it's just shallow, superficial thinking based on the emoting of the problems of our culture. So let's deal with this in a nice, logical, rational manner and uh, try to keep subjectivity out of it.
How is the soul passed from one generation to another? Is it done by procreation or is it passed on uh, directly and immediately by God? Is each soul created at the instant of birth and and simultaneously uh, imparted to the newborn baby at the time of birth? Two important terms that you have to understand in this discussion are immediate and immediate. Immediate means directly, that God directly creates the soul at the point of birth and passes it on uh, simultaneously. The word immediate involves secondary causes, involves secondary causes that God does it, but he does it through a secondary causes. For example, God, we can say God creates the, everybody's human body. Uh, David does that in Psalm 139. But it's done immediately or through the secondary causes of, of, of procreation. And through the process of sex, God creates the, the human bodies as they go from generation to generation. So we have to understand the difference between immediate and immediate. Immediate involves secondary causes. Immediate is God's direct uh, creation. So we have to go through this. Now, the second thing that's important is just understanding the terminology and its historical background. History is important because it brings a lot of perspective to what is going on today. And one of the reasons we have problems in the current situation, current debate is because there hasn't been enough attention paid, in my opinion, to uh, the historical background. And so history is important because, as Hegel pointed out, if we ignore history, we're doomed to repeat it. And, of course, that frequently happens. There are two positions. Actually, there's a third position, which I'm just going to briefly identify that have been uh, been a part of Christian Christian thinking. The first view comes directly out of Platonism, and it involved the pre-existence of the souls, and that everybody's souls up in heaven for a long time, and it's not until God creates a body that he that he pushes the soul down into the body, and that just came out of paganism, and so nobody who's ever really serious about the Bible, other than allegory held that view, so we're going to just pass by it. The two views that have really dominated through church history are traditionism and creationism. Those are the terms, traditionism and creationism. Traditionism comes from the Latin word uh, traducere, meaning to transfer. That's what it, where it derives. This view teaches that both the material body and the immaterial soul are transmitted through physical procreation. Now, what's important about this is that the first person to really articulate this, once again, the context of Neoplatonism, which tended to overemphasize the spiritual in the early part of the church, was Tertullian. Now, Tertullian's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, most of you haven't spent a whole lot of time reading Tertullian. He's not in your top ten list. You haven't gone down to catch him on the latest paperback rack at uh, Barnes & Noble. But Tertullian was important because you use a word that he coined all the time, and that is the word trinity. He coined the word trinitas in Latin to refer to the fact that God is one in essence and three in person. Prior to that time, they didn't have that word. So see, when you think about the Trinity and use the word Trinity, you can think about God in ways the Apostle Paul could never think about God. 
Isn't that interesting? See, when you think about use the word hypostatic union, you're using concepts that were worked out in uh, church history, and you're using technical vocabulary that's much more precise than anything the Apostle Paul had available to him. Isn't that interesting? Just give you something to kind of chew on for a while. See, God wants us, to, in the process of studying his word, to do that, to, to understand, to develop it, to, to coin vocabulary to express the concepts of his word so that we can build a systematic theology and understand all of the relationships that are going on within his word. So there's nothing wrong with coining words to represent biblical concepts because the church has been doing that from the very beginning. Words like uh, trinity and rapture are not words that are found in uh, the original text but are coined to accurately represent and identify uh, concepts that are in the text. But Tertullian was sort of a mixed bag. Tertullian was a Montanist. Now, you all know what Montanists were, don't you? Okay. In the early church, you had the same basic problems that you had all through Scripture, all through the church history. You always have, in the middle, you have your biblicists, such as they are, from generation to generation. Then there's one group that always wants to take away from the Bible. You know, this is a group that takes out their razor blade and says, well, Jesus really didn't say this, and this really isn't truth, and that really isn't truth, and they sort of want to chop everything up. We would call those the liberals of the day. This is the original Jesus seminar, and in the second century, that was represented by a guy named Marcion. And Marcion was just a rabid anti-Semite. And so he thought that anything in the Bible, in the New Testament, that, that spoke uh, positively about Jews couldn't be part of the New Testament. So he got rid of Matthew and Mark and um, about a third of Luke, and, and he got rid of John, and he got rid of 11, all but 11 of Paul's epistles and everything else. And so he was the first to really come up with a canon. See, the church always forms theology in the context of false teaching. Once somebody said, this is it, this is all there is to the Bible, everybody else said, oh, you're wrong, but wait a minute, you got a good question there. What is the New Testament? So they finally began to work through the issue of canonicity. It's always in the context of error. So Marcion came along and he said, nah, we're going to get our razor blade out and we just got a few little books here. He's the proto-liberal. Then on the other extreme, we've got the what? Those who want to add to the canon. Those who want to add new revelation. We call those today charismatics. God spoke to me. we got tongues and revelation and prophecy and all this other stuff going on. So we always have our, these were, the Montanists were proto, that means early, primitive, were proto-charismatics. And they were following a guy that came out of what we now call Turkey or Anatolia, who was a son of a, or formerly he had been a priest of Sibylle, this was the Sibylle, Addis, or Mother Child cult that dominated in the area of uh, western Turkey. And, of course, the priests and priestesses of the Sibylle, Addis cult spoke in gibberish. They, they were very, it was a very mystical, uh, mystery religion. And so he came out of that. And so not unlike a lot of uh, charismatics today, he had his two priestesses with him. And he, uh, 
He's talking about how God is continuing to give him revelation. So, see, you always have the problem with those who want to take away from Scripture and those who want to add to Scripture. And Tertullian was a mild Montanist. So he had his problems in the area of understanding a number of important doctrines. But, you know, this is very early in the church. We're talking about dates from 155 to 220. So positively he contributes the uh, terminology for the Trinity, Negatively, he uh, provides uh, uh, the problem with uh, Montanus and some other things. He, he, he wrote a lot, and he's got some other issues, but uh, that, that ought to give you a little idea of who he was. So just because he said something doesn't make it so. And he was the first to say that the soul was transmitted through procreation. And guess what? It's because his view was that the soul was material, not immaterial. I didn't slur that. He thought the soul was just as material as your big toe or your thumb or your left arm or your right arm. And so his view that the soul is transmitted through sexual activity and procreation was an outgrowth of his understanding that there really isn't anything material, which was part of his reaction to Neoplatonism. That's very important to understand, and a lot of people don't understand that. And you never find... Uh, people uh, emphasizing that, even those who are uh, proponents of traditionism. Now, the other view is called creationism. Now, this isn't scientific creationism or biblical creationism in opposition to evolutionism. This is a term that's been used for centuries that teaches the view that only the body is generated physically or through procreation, but the soul is directly and immediately created by God and imparted to the uh, infant at birth. It is an ancient view. It was the dominant view. In fact, in the ninth, this is what most people don't understand today, is that if you're a traditionist even today, you're, you're in the minority in terms of church history. Up until... Uh, the 19th century, middle of the 19th century, William G.T. Shedd, who was a very well-known and respected conservative Presbyterian theologian, uh, wrote, he was a creationist, and he said, but this is a minority position. Everybody else is, I mean, he was a traditionist, rather. He said, everybody else is a creationist. But he was a traditionist. Now, if you listen to most of the moral majority, you listen, you read an Israel article in Israel, My Glory, that came out in this month's issue, written by Reynolds Showers, who is a uh, well-respected theologian who's with, uh, with the Friends of Israel, writes, wrote a whole, whole article taking the traditionist view. So this is very popular today, and everybody, it became politi- the politically correct evangelical position after Roe Ro v. Wade. And you come along and say you're a creation. People say, well, that's, how can you hold that position? Well, let's see. In all of church history, probably 90% of theologians, Catholic, most Lutherans up until the 18th century, uh, Presbyterians, almost everybody was, was creationist. This isn't, and they weren't, see, they didn't have the political pressure of the abortion debate. They're just dealing with the text. In other words, my, as you can see, my argument is going to be that the popularity of the traditionist position has been forged in the context of the politics of the day apart from exegesis. 
So for creationists, the body is created indirectly through intermediate means. Uh, or excuse, excuse me, is, for the creationist, the body is created by God. That should read directly. I got that backwards, didn't I? Directly through the intermediate means and the soul. Oh, the body rather. The body is created uh, directly by God and the. I'm going to turn that off. That's wrong. The body is created indirectly and the soul is created uh, directly by God and imparted at the time of, of birth. Now, let's see the historical background here. Tertullian was the first to coin the word for traditionism. Uh, Luther held to a, um, a traditionist position. Later, he shifted to creationism in the uh, Lutheran Concord of the, of the 16th century. They held to a, a creationist position. They later changed it and went back. Uh, William G.T. Shedd held to a traditionist position. Lewis Berry Chafer held to a traditionist position. Chafer gets through with his whole discussion of traditionism versus creationism and says, you know, the evidence is pretty equal, but I'm going to say it just tips very slightly towards traditionism. A lot of more contemporary systematic theologies that have come out in recent years don't even discuss the issue. I was pulling books off my shelf by uh, systematic theologies that have been written in recent years and thumbing through the index, and they don't even have uh, a reference to this in to this debate in their uh, in their index. In creationism, Jerome, who was the early church father, translated the New Testament, uh, actually translated the Bible, Hebrew Old Testament, and Greek New Testament into Latin, the Vulgate. He was a creationist. He believed life began at birth. Now, who really honors Jerome, St. Jerome, translated the Vulgate? Oh, he's one of the major fathers for the Roman Catholic Church, isn't he? Okay, so is Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor. Aquinas said in his Summa Theologica, he said, it is heresy to think that the soul is transmitted through the semen. This is the doctor of theology, they call him, for the Roman Catholic Church. And he says that traditionism is heresy. Calvin was a creationist. Charles Hodge, very famous 19th century uh, theologian. Many, many others were creationists as well. As I pointed out, Shedd Shed recognized that nearly every, every theologian uh, up to his time was a creationist, that it was unusual to be a traditionist. Augustine is, I don't have him listed there, but he was a creationist most of his life. Uh, when he got into some arguments with Pelagius, he began to uh, uh, waffle a little bit, but he never could convince himself that traditionism uh, had a case. He, he started uh, <coughs> becoming un, uh, uncertain on his creationist views, but he could never convince himself that the traditionist view could uh, could be supported. Okay, well, that just gives you the historical background to this debate. One of the reasons I bring that out is because many people who hold to a creationist view today uh, think that somehow this uh, this is an odd view. They they hear this taught and they say, "Well, that's that's that, I've never heard that." I mean, every evangelical I've ever heard said that, that uh, the soul was present from conception. But that is a recent, I mean, it's not a recent view, but it's popularity among 
uh, biblical students is very recent. Uh, it's a 20th century phenomenon. And I bring that out and point out this history so people realize that there is a significance to this historical debate and that if you take a creationist position, you're not some you know, wild-eyed liberal weirdo that, that never, you never had heard of. I mean, I talked to seminary guys when, when I was in seminary that had never heard anybody who took this position before, and so it was a kind of an eye-opening thing for them. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you that we have your word to go to that gives us guidance in, in every, everything that we think about in all areas of life. And as we think through what your word teaches us about this important issue, about the transmission of the soul, and when full human life begins, we pray that you'd guide and direct our thinking. Help us to be objective and not subjective. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.